For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with my co-host, Mike Madison. You can always email us your questions, comments, or you can share your story at podcast at enditforgood.com. You can email us there. Uh, And we're really excited because the End It For Good website is live, and you can visit us there at enditforgood.com. You can listen to the podcast. There's resources, um, including how to host a book discussion in your own community, which is how End It For Good got started. So, um, about a year and a half ago, I hosted a uh, just an informal gathering with some friends over uh, the book Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari, which I had read and found just so thought provoking. Um, and those book discussions have turned into statewide book discussions. I lead them um, in different parts of Mississippi, which is with people all over the place who are interested in uh, talking about this issue, exploring this issue. It's just been a great non-threatening way to come together and um kind of elevate this conversation in our um, public discourse. So <clears throat> there's a, you can go to enditforgood.com and I'll send you a um, kind of what I did. How have I structured those? And anybody anywhere can do that and get that conversation started in your own community. And that's how change happens. So today we're thrilled to welcome uh, the author of that book, Johan Hari, back to the show. Uh, Johan wrote Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. Uh, It's a New York Times bestseller. And in our last episode, we explored how and why the war on drugs actually started 100 years ago in the U.S. Uh, And we wanted to have Johan back again because um, even understanding how it started here um, in all of its uh, complexities and and all of that, we want to know how did it become this kind of global war and what's been the fallout in other countries. So, Johan, welcome back to the show. Um, so glad to be back with you. Thanks, Christina. So help us understand, you, you go into, even after kind of this, this war started um, here with it prohibiting uh, heroin and cocaine and then really cracking down on doctors, like we talked about um, in the previous episode, this kind of onslaught um, of uh, prosecutions in the medical community for doctors who were trying to treat addicted people medically um, and were faced uh, criminal prosecution for that. Uh, How did this end up becoming this global war on drugs? Take us on that journey. There's this amazing moment that I think summarizes it. So drugs were legal in most parts of the world and two countries unite to get drugs banned everywhere. One is the United States where drug policy is led by Harry Anslinger The other is the communist tyranny in the Soviet Union. It's one of the very few things the United States and the Soviet Union totally agreed on, right? And you had loads of countries who said this isn't going to work. So I'll give you an example. Mexico, uh, in the 1930s, um, the U.S. is pressuring Mexico to ban all drugs. And Mexico, actually, their drug policy was run by a man called Leopoldo Salazar Viniegra, who I think is one of the most prophetic people who's ever lived. He said... We shouldn't ban cannabis because it's got some problems, but it's not especially harmful. Uh, And with other drugs, we should treat people with addiction problems in clinics. We should give them love and compassion. He said, if we ban drugs, our country will be taken over by drug lords and Mexico will be destroyed. 
Right? It turns out, as as we know, he was entirely correct. Um, mm. And the Mexican government backed him. The US obviously had a lot of power over Mexico then, as they do now. Um, you know, the, a lot of uh, economic pressure and so on. They start pressuring Mexico. They start saying, you know, we're going to put tariffs and all sorts of things if you don't ban drugs. And the Mexican government, hugely to their credit, say, no, we've got to put the health of our citizens first. We're not going to do this. It hasn't worked in your country. It won't work in our country. And they really hold out for this. And then Anslinger persuades the US government to do something quite extreme. At that time, all opiates that were made for medical use in hospitals, so like pain relief, say, if, you know, you have a major operation or something, were manufactured in the United States. So the United States cuts off access for Mexico to all legal opiates. So people start dying in agony in Mexican hospitals, and the Mexican government just has to give in. They get rid of this, this guy, Leopoldo, Sal Leopoldo Salazar Viniegra, and instead they adopt the American war on drugs approach, really at the kind of almost at the bullet of a gun. Um, and of course, we know what happened to Mexico. Hundreds of thousands of people have died in just in the last 15 years alone in the horrific violence that's been created by this drug war. Um, because when you ban drugs, they don't disappear. They're transferred from the people who used to control them. People like this doctor, Leopoldo Salazar Viniegra, licensed legal businesses, and they're transferred to crazed armed criminal gangsters. And as you know, for Chasing the Scream, I spent time with a hitman for one of the deadliest Mexican drug cartels, Los Zetas, um, a young man who had butchered or beheaded over 70 people. That's the direct product of this, this decision to, to ban those drugs. I can talk about how if you want, but there's this moment, right? So the US, you've got the rubble of the world after the Second World War. The United States is left standing as one of the great, the great, by far the greatest and most dominant power in the world. And now the US can impose on other countries this policy like the US imposed it on Mexico. So, for example, at the United Nations, the new United Nations, when Anslinger is like instructing other countries to carry out this ban, the Thai, the, the ambassador from Thailand is kind of arguing back, right? He's saying, well, you know, we, we, we actually have a long history of drug use in our country, opium. Um, we, we've never had this kind of approach. We don't think it'll work. We can't see that it's worked in your country. And Anslinger said, these were his exact words, I've made up my mind. Don't try to confuse me with the facts. Wow. And I always think that could be like the motto for the entire drug war, right? I've made up my mind. Don't try to confuse me with the facts. Wow. That's even in our time, <clears throat> says we're following, you know, now in 2019, kind of what's happening with uh, the immigration crisis and with, you know, uh, cartels and all of that in South America. And the more that I've kind of thought about, you know, so much of what is driving that what I'm reading anyway, so much of what is um, driving the desire for people to flee their homeland there, which they want to stay home. They, most of them would, would prefer to stay um, in their homeland, but so much of it is driven by uh, violence that's coming from kind of the cartel um, industry and uh, government uh, corruption also kind of uh, largely driven by this, you know, uh, cartel industry. So, you know, to me as as a politically conservative person, um, kind of following mm. what's happening now and and thinking, you know, so much of our this present crisis that we're in 
is going back also to this drug war, to what has happened in Central and South America, um, not entirely because of the drug war, but uh, but the drug war has been a, a huge catalyst for um, the level of of you know violence and corruption that is so happening right. there. I think it's really important to explain to people how that happens because it can seem a bit strange at first, right? So the best way to explain it to people, I think, is anyone listening to this show could do a little experiment. I'm not recommending you do this, but you just think about it. Um, imagine you wanted to steal a bottle of vodka, right? You go into your local liquor store and you try you take a bottle of vodka and put it under your arm and you walk out. If the store catches you, um, that, that store will call the police and the police will come and arrest you. So... They don't need to be violent. They don't need to be intimidating. They've got the power of the law to uphold their property rights. Okay, now imagine you try to steal a bag of cannabis or a bag of cocaine. Obviously, the person who sells that can't call the cops. The cops will come and arrest them. They have to fight you. Hmm. Yeah. If, you, um, if, if, you, if you're selling drugs, you don't want to be having a fight day, right? So you, you want to establish a reputation for being so frightening that no one would dare to take you on. And the, the war, as the writer Charles Bowden put it, the war on drugs creates a war for drugs, right? It creates a war for drugs is exactly this dynamic. And if you want to know how much of that violence is caused by the fact that we have prohibited these drugs, just ask yourself, where are the violent alcohol dealers today? Does the head of Smirnoff go and shoot the head of cause in the face? right does the um you know does the the uh, does your local bar send a bunch of teenagers to go and shoot up the next bar down of course not exactly that happened under alcohol prohibition right um everyone knows who al capone was uh, everyone knows what the st valentine's day massacre was uh, i bet nobody listening to this show knows the name of the head of budweiser right uh, why what changed the drug didn't change what changes the system of legal regulation? There's a man at Harvard called Professor Jeffrey Myron. He's done incredible research, just looking at the murder rate in the 20th century in the United States. It massively shoots up under alcohol prohibition, and it falls like a stone the day alcohol prohibition ended. You know, I've developed a slightly unlikely friendship with the son of Pablo Escobar, a guy called Sebastian Marroquin. And when I saw him recently... In- <laughs> You should talk to him, actually. He's totally fascinating. He'd be a great guest for your podcast. Remind me to introduce you. But, you know, he's he's a fascinating guy. And, and, and you know, he said to me, the only thing my father ever truly feared was drug legalization. He said, if drugs had been legal, my father would have been a used car salesman and you would have never heard his name. And we think about the, the, the evidence we have because often... There's a phrase people you'll hear in the media, happens a lot. People use the phrase drug-related violence to describe a lot of what we're talking about. And I think what most people picture, what I used to picture when you hear the phrase drug-related violence, is someone using drugs, going crazy and attacking people, right? And that does happen sometimes. There's a guy called Professor Paul Goldstein who did a study of all the drug-related violence in New York City in 1986, And what he found is, I think the figure was 3% of what was called drug-related violence was someone using drugs and losing it. I think there was another 6 or 7% that was someone who had an addiction problem, like breaking into a home or something to get steel in order to feed their addiction and then that becoming violent. And the vast majority of the violence was this drug-related, what's called drug-related violence, was this violence caused by prohibition, right? It's the war for drugs. It's the war for control of the drug trade. 
And that's bad enough in Chicago. That's bad enough in any city in the United States. If you live in a housing project where 5% of the economy is controlled by these armed criminal gangs who are engaged in a war for drugs, your life will be miserable. But in a place like some of the places I went to, like El Salvador, Ciudad Juarez, and on the border, the Mexican side of the border with the United States, that violence is unbelievably horrific, right? I mean, more people have died in the drug-related violence in Central, South, and uh, in Latin America than have died in the conflict in Syria, right? Um, I don't know what we can do about the conflict in Syria. There's a lot we can do about the violence this violence, mm. we can end most of this violence, right? There is no alcohol trade related violence in the United States today, right? There was an enormous amount of it when that drug was banned and it ended as soon as that drug, as that ended. That doesn't mean that everyone who was a criminal under alcohol prohibition benefiting from that uh, went into a legitimate trade. Some of them went into gambling, they go and build Vegas, they do all sorts of other things. But Criminals respond to incentives like everyone else, right? Most of your listeners, I'm pretty sure, would not go and, I don't know, push over an old woman in the street. If I offered them $100,000 to do it, some of them would consider doing it, right? Um, don't worry, I'm not offering them money to do that. But criminals respond to incentives. What we've done is we've created an enormous incentive for criminal violence. Uh, and we can reclaim that. And that's a great point. And that's <clears throat> what some people tell me, too, is... Um, even my husband, when we were, I was first kind of getting interested in this and I was, you know, beginning to read things about it. And I would tell him, you know, this is so much, this whole, you know, this gang and cartel, like we're, we are funding them through drug prohibition. Like we're not weakening them. This is like creating their market, you know, for them. Yeah. Um, and he said to me, but Christina, like, it's not like all these people are going to just, you know, go and be law abiding citizens. They're going to find something else to do. Um, so I thought, well, that's a that's that's a you know that's a good point. Let me let me work on you know researching that. What what happens? Um, and I think that's great what you're saying because there, this is true. Some of them will not, but people are always looking for ways to make money. So currently, um, there is so much money. The global illegal drug industry is like five hundred billion dollars a year yeah. in global industry just for illegal drugs. So when you have this like massive pile of money and then you just try to tell people don't go after it. Yeah, it just is it's nuts, yeah. you know. It, people are so going to go after that. And there's two other things related to that that I think are really important as well. So let's think about someone that I got to know in the writing of the book, a young man called Rosalio Reta. So he grew up in on the Mexican United States border in Laredo and Nuevo Laredo. So Laredo is on the Texas side and Nuevo Laredo is on the Mexican side. And um, got up in a big family of nine kids, very poor. Uh, And at that time, the border was not very policed and you could just go back and forth over it. Um, He's an American citizen. And at the age of 14, he was recruited by one of the most heinous um, drug gangs in the world, Los Zetas. Actually, the origins of Los Zetas are insane. So the US government decided they were going to train an elite anti-narcotics force equivalent to the DEA for Mexico. So they take a load of Mexican Mexican people to Fort Bragg. They spend some enormous sum of money, I forget the exact figure, on training them, making them into the elite drug force. 
They go back to Mexico, and a few months later, they all defect en masse and create their own drug cartel, which is what Los Cetis is. So they, and it's just nice. insane. So, so they, uh, so everyone listening to this, that's where your tax money went. Um, and this group, Los Cetis, who are insanely brutal, um, they they uh, employ Rosalio. He's fourteen years old, and they recruit him to be one of their child soldiers. And I got to know Rosalio in prison. He's he's now in prison in um, in Tyler County in Texas. I remember going in to see Rosalio actually the first time, and they um, the guard said to me, "Well, obviously we can't leave you alone with him because he's like beheaded seventy people." And I was like, "Oh, thanks." And they said, "So don't worry." His guard said, "Don't worry, I'll be here with you." And I was asked like, good. And about I was sitting in the room with him, and about five minutes later, I turned around. And the guard is gone and didn't come back for another three hours. But anyway, <laughs> as you could tell, I, I survived. But the so I'm sitting there with Rosalio, right? And I'm thinking about this. So when he's 14, this 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 drug gang, uh, they recruit him and they get him to carry out unbelievably insane forms of, I mean, just such extreme forms of violence. But but it was, I mean, beheadings, that kind of thing. But 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 actually, like ISIS style stuff. But, but what's interesting is. Um, it's easy to look at that and think, oh, this is just like Jeffrey Dahmer or something. This is just, in, you know, psychotic violence. Mm-hmm. But actually, the drug war creates a structural incentive for this violence. It's almost like a kind of evolution, right? If you are the group um, that is prepared to push the violence a little bit further, you gain a brief competitive advantage, right? So let's think about what happened with Rosalio. Um Prior to Rosalio, the, the wave that the wave of violence that Rosalio is recruited into, um, there was a taboo around. Um, so criminals would kill each other, but you didn't go and kill their wives or children. So it's the, the Zetas break that taboo, right? They go and kill the wives and children. So they gain a brief competitive advantage because the other side backs off. You control more of the trade. At which point, the other side says, "Well, we're not just going to kill the other side's wives and children. We're going to kill their pregnant wives." Again, a brief competitive advantage. Then the Zetas say, well, we're going to kill their pregnant wives, cut off their faces, sew them onto footballs and mail them to their families. I mean, such, again, you get a brief competitive advantage, right? It's almost the most unimaginable possible kind of Darwinian struggle. But think about Rosalio, right? Now, I suspect Rosalio would have been, he was quite, he's quite a disturbed young man. He would have been drawn to violence in any circumstance. In the absence of drug prohibition, there would not have been an enormously well-funded machine that took him to training camps to teach him how to behead people, cut off their faces. There would not have been a machine paying him $1,000 a week to go and carry out these unbelievably dreadful forms of violence. You just cannot tell me that. That is clearly not true, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, sure, would Rosalio have been violent? I suspect he would have been. Would he have been able to engage in this industrial scale of violence? Certainly not. So I think there's partly that, there's, of course, there's going to be a certain proportion of the population who are drawn to violence anyway, but we've we've created industry that financially rewards that extreme violence mm-hmm. and um, has the best weapons in the world, the money to buy the best weapons, the best machinery, all of these things. But also there's a slightly more um, complex thing, but I think is really equally important. So sometimes people will say, well, if we legalise these people will go into other forms of organised crime, like kidnapping, pimping, and so on. It's a really interesting piece of evidence about this. If you look at alcohol prohibition, um, during in the 1920s, 
kidnappings massively went up in the United States, right? Uh, that people will know about the Lindbergh baby. So mm-hmm. Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviation pilot who, who was one of the richest men in the United States, his baby was um, kidnapped for a ransom and unfortunately and tragically actually murdered by the by the kidnappers. Um, that was actually just the most famous of a big wave of kidnapping in the 1920s. And you think, well, why, why did that happen? Why was there a big increase in kidnapping at the same time as alcohol prohibition was? What's going on there? Such a kind of simple reason. Imagine if you and I wanted to carry out a kidnapping. Clearly we don't. Imagine if we did. You actually have to have quite a lot of upfront capital to carry out a kidnapping, right? You have to get a car. You have to employ employ quite a large team of people. Um, you have to you have to actually have a place where no one will hear the victim of the kidnapping scream and shout. It's actually quite a lot of money up front. You can't go to your bank and ask for a loan or you're going to carrying out a kidnapping. But what happened is... Under alcohol prohibition, criminals had had a far bigger pot of money than they'd ever had before in the United States, right? Because they're suddenly controlling one of the most popular trades in the country. What you effectively have is a bank of crime with a huge venture capital fund, right? And then when alcohol prohibition is ended, this huge trade is reclaimed from these criminals. Actually, the bank of crime has far less venture capital to invest. In a similar way, what we know is, um, I think about Los Aetas, which which Rosalio uh, worked for, the group, they've actually been a bit eclipsed now by other drug gangs, but let's think about them. They were involved in kidnapping. How did they fund their kidnapping? Well, they funded it by controlling the drug trade, right? So one thing that happens when you end prohibition is you take a huge, literally hundreds of billions of dollars that are currently in the hands of armed criminal gangs who they can who can then invest in other forms of criminality you take that away from them of course it doesn't stop some of them being criminals but as with anything if you've got a lot more money you can do something a lot more efficiently and a lot more broadly you see what i mean yeah yeah that's such an interesting uh point in that the research on that about kidnappings going up at the beginning of prohibition and then falling at the end of prohibition when the investment capital bank of um, of prohibition yeah. went away because that that's certainly something I have thought about and people say well, what about you know is human trafficking just going to skyrocket you know if we legalize drugs and the more that I've kind of thought about that and have wondered it it may I mean it we don't know what would happen, but how much of it currently is being funded by all of the five hundred billion dollars a year that are that are coming in from drug prohibition? Um, you know, smuggling drugs is is far more uh, easier than smuggling a human being, and can be done mm-hmm. much more efficiently and be made a lot more money um, because of it. And you know, there's that that investment bank principle. I think is a really interesting one that we don't know what would happen, but. We can look, like you're saying, at alcohol prohibition and see it was that alcohol prohibition money was funding other kinds of crime that were uh, far more harmful, you know, harmful against, you know, families and children. And um, and, that and, sort of and thing. I think we also I think we also know one other really important thing, which is we can look at the places that have already legalized. So, for example, Colorado's legalization of marijuana has, according to all the police estimates there, including among police who are sceptical of the legalisation and don't agree with some aspects of it, has led to a significant dent in organised crime in Colorado. Or think about Switzerland, where they legalised heroin. People who talk about human trafficking and prostitution, far from facilitating uh, more of that, when Switzerland legalised heroin um, in a medical way, I'm sure we'll talk about that, actually street prostitution, the most extreme form of trafficking kind of pimped women on the streets literally ended it didn't exist anymore in in uh, 
and doesn't exist anymore in Switzerland. And again, police officers who were quite sceptical of the um, the legalisation before it happened have, um, you know, have, have been the people to point that out. Yeah, I just saw a, a, a article about the decrease in marijuana smuggling, like you were talking about with it being legal. It's legal now in a, a number of states recreationally. Here in the U.S., and there's been a 70 percent decrease in smuggling marijuana yeah. across our southern border when yeah. when we now legalized it here. So there's still obviously some of there's smuggling going on within the United States related to marijuana. And there's still, you know, 30 percent of what was coming in before is still coming through our southern border. But in terms of, you know, I thought that was just so interesting about, you know, we we, we want so much to control the flow of uh, of illegal goods that are coming and bringing that market back into regulation has done more, the article I was reading, done far more to decrease the flow of drugs across the border than, you know, all of the other work we've done with the miles of fences and more guards and all of that, um, just to bring that uh, back into um, regulation. So it's, it's kind of the the whole theme of what we've been talking about over the last 30 minutes is really that the drug industry is not violent. And we have we have thought of it that way for so long because that's only how we have experienced it. But really, the, the industry itself is not violent, but a black market is violent. And we have pushed drugs into that black market. So we experienced the drug industry as incredibly violent. One of the first people who came to um, the first book discussion that I hosted was uh, a woman who had worked as a social worker. Uh, she was a social worker at that time, but one of the jobs that she had had was uh, working with child soldiers from South America um, and huh. rehoming them in the United States, children who had been kidnapped and forced into, um, you know, working for cartels. So I think, again, that pushes at that idea that, you know, everybody that's working for cartels is just a gangster that wanted to do that. Um, there is it's not just a financial incentive for people who are willing themselves to take on the risk and all of the violence and the the moral injury of being, you know, voluntarily participating in that. But when you have so much money at stake, the people who are already doing that are willing to uh, force through any means necessary as many people as they need for their army to I'm become totally. part of that, which is just horrific to think of the damage to children and families that's happening from people who had no interest in being involved in the drug trade, but had now found themselves caught up in, um, in this part of it. So thank you, you know, so it's much. So funny, oh, as, as you say that, that it's funny. You, you, it's just two things I just think about, as you said that Christina, one is, um, I had this little, <laughs> little taste of like how this begins in a funny context. Uh, a friend of mine is a kind of, um, kind of hipster in New York uh it, what likes you know it's illegal to buy uh raw milk non-pasteurized milk um he really loves he, he w wants to buy it right I, I, I don't know anything about the science of this I'm, my instinct is to agree with the like the you know I, I, would, I wouldn't drink raw milk myself um so there's these like um illegal raw milk dealers who've like cropped up in like brooklyn who you can go and you can buy your your raw milk from and one day i was with um i was with him and he and he is going to buy it and we turn up and the woman who sells it is, you know, a kind of, um, you know, kind of hippie woman in her 60s. Right. And she's crying when we turn up and we're like, oh, what's wrong? And she said, oh, someone just turned up and threatened me and took all my milk uh, and they, they stole it. And I can't go to the police because, like, I'm not allowed to sell this. 
And I remember sitting there feeling sorry for this woman, but also thinking, oh, you're learning the first principle of drug dealing, right? If you have no recourse to the law, you have to be frightening. You have to be terrifying. You have to be violent. And you're not frightening and violent, right? So you can be ripped off at no cost. Um, and I thought, of course, raw milk is not. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what harm there is in raw milk, but it's not, you know, right, it's not cocaine, right. is it? But, but, but I do thinking, um, oh, this is this is this is a really basic principle, right? That you're not, you know, that yeah. you're, you're going to have to learn. And I and I thought about Rosalia, and it's so funny. I remember, obviously, I went to some of the most horrendous and violence violent places in the research for chasing the screen, and I remember. When I went to meet with the woman who was in charge of, so I'd been to places where people were being butchered, just horror. And I remember when they legalized marijuana in, in um, I remember meeting the woman who was in charge, the government bureaucrat who was in charge of uh, managing the legalization of Colorado, right? She wouldn't tell me how she voted in the referendum, but she, she had quite a good poker face on that. So I genuinely don't know, but I was talking to her, she was talking about all the different regulations they were introducing and like, you know, like how big should the font be on the site, on a brownie package, that kind of thing. And I was speaking to her for about half an hour. She's a really nice woman. I remember having this weird feeling and thinking, what is this? What, 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 what am I feeling? I can't place it. And I suddenly realised I was really bored. And nowhere had I been bored in the research for the book. And I suddenly thought... Well, this is the reality of legalization, right? It's not that the reality of prohibition is this extreme violence, this insanity. And then you legalize. And what's the argument? How big should the font be on a brownie package, right? It's the sudden, I almost cried because of the relief, right? It's like, oh, this, this insane war that's killed all these people. This didn't have to happen. We could just be having boring questions about packaging and THC content and regulation and how you do it and what should the level of taxation be and just this incredible thing the journey from Rosalio with his you know cutting people's heads off to this Colorado soccer mom whose job is to figure out really boring questions right Mm -hmm. that's the difference between prohibition and legalization and that's really what we see in alcohol and with tobacco and, you know, I don't drink and I don't smoke. So for me, yeah, you know, I'd be, I'd be happy if neither one of those, you know, existed. They don't do anything yeah. for me and they can create a lot of harm. So to me, it's, you know, sure. well, but that's really, that's, that's not the, the choice that we have. The choice is what we've done with alcohol and tobacco. Are we willing to do that? Which is we let people smoke cigarettes, even though it's terrible for your health. We put all of our resources into educating people honestly about what can happen to your body because you're doing this, but we don't, start a war on trying to force them not to. We've kind of acknowledged yeah. this is a substance that's going to be with us and how are we going to make it as as uninteresting as possible to youth, to adults, you know, exactly. and, and how can we put it behind a counter so it's less accessible to youth than on a street corner? Um, mm-hmm. These are such great uh, things. For me, each one of these was like this earthquake of thought I had never mm. considered before. And really, that's what we want to do on this podcast is just kind of bring these thoughts to people to, to help us begin this um, conversation of really rethinking how we think about this. So we've been talking to Johan Hari, the author of Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. You can access more of Johan's work, including his newest book, Lost Connections, at johanhari.com. That's J-O-H-A-N-N-H-A-R-I.com. If you have questions, comments, or want to share your story, you can always email us at podcast at com. 
I am your host, Christina Dent, along with my co-host and producer, Mike Madison, inviting you to continue with us as we explore ending this criminal approach to drugs, ending this war so that we can honestly educate and we can really focus all of our resources on how can we help keep people alive and help them build a life they want to be present for outside of drug use. Thanks for joining us. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.